They're very nice. Asiento. El Rio began her life in 1978 as a leather Brazilian gay bar. We are an LGBTQ plus space who is welcoming to all good people. We actively invest in communities to promote social change. We actively invest in our local arts and music scene to give space for artists. We actively pursue underserved communities in the use of our space. We are an awesome supporter of the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, hosting an incredible offside show. Wednesday, March 4th, 9 to 11 p.m. with LGBTQ plus and allied comics. So come out to 3158 Mission Street at Cesar Chavez, San Francisco. It's open every day at 2 p.m. with an incredible back patio. El Rio is your dive.
turn the other cheek He'd plead Love thy neighbor was his creed
squabbles, he shot down. Shot down just the other day.
You know my next guest from the band Alabama Shakes, performing Stay High from her new solo album, Jamie. Ladies and gentlemen, Brittany Howard.
And good morning, labor and love, right here on Mutiny Radio, right now, every Saturday from 10 to 12. The show where we remind you, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. you don't have a seat at the table, a negotiating table that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Remember, it's your work that makes them rich, so of course they don't want you to have a union. They don't want you to get together with your fellows and your sisters and organize so you speak with one voice, so you are mighty and powerful. They don't want you mighty and powerful. They want you showing up with your hat in your hand, begging for work. Begging, that is, to be exploited. Good morning, everybody. This is the B. Labor and Love Radio. And we're here again with two hours of labor music, labor commentary, labor opinion, labor history, by, for, and about working people. MLK, of course, Martin Luther King's birthday, Um, we started out, well, the last thing we played was a beautiful song by Brittany Howard, Stay High, kind of an antidote to those bummers before that. I'd Rather Go Blind by Etta James, which expressed the feeling of a lot of people when Martin Luther King was murdered. And before that, Nina Simone's tribute, The King of Love. The King of Love is dead. So we're going to talk about King. Uh, how can you talk about ML King on a labor show? <laughs> labor card number 16. Martin Luther King, 1929 to 1968. Our needs are labor's needs. Decent wages. Fair working conditions. Livable housing. Old age security, the great civil rights leader declared. King realized that civil rights are meaningless without economic rights. Many of his first, many of his closest aides were veterans of the labor movement. Their tactics, like boycotts and sit-ins, had also been used in labor campaigns. And in April of 1963, he went to Memphis, Tennessee, to support striking sanitation workers in their struggle for union recognition. In his last speech, he said, support.
support your brother. Maybe he's not on strike and maybe you are. Or maybe he's on strike and maybe you're not. But we go up together or we go down together. Martin Luther King. So Martin Luther King, he gave his lifetime. We got Radio Labor, our World Labor Report. Radio Notes questions the National Labor Relations Board. All labor has dignity from a speech by Martin Luther King Jr. What? Tanks? Robots? Attack squad to arrest some moms? Tanks and AR-15s, you heard it. Militarized eviction from vacant Oakland House. How could that be? What do we need to beat Trump by Francesca Fiorentini? Why is legal immigration to the U.S. almost impossible by Francesca Ramsey? We got Bry Cooter. Let's see. History and labor history in two minutes. A couple of Rye Cooter things. Anyway, a full schedule this morning on Labor and Love Radio. Well, let's start out then with Martin Luther King. Greatest American of all time. Go figure. A man who put his life on the line a man who knew very well that the labor movement and the civil rights movement were almost identical in some ways. The movements among blacks were fueled, of course, by working class people. Uh, listen to Juan Gonzalez here. He gave his life in the labor struggle. In the last speech, he was shot dead less than 24 hours later. We're joined now by two. Methodist Church in Memphis in 1968, historian Michael Honey, author of the new book, To the Promised Land, Martin Luther King and the Fight for Economic Justice. Uh, Michael Honey, I'd like to begin with you and ask you about the— much in your book is about the labor dimension of uh, Martin Luther King's civil rights struggle. And in one part of the book, you talk about the SCLC convention in 1966, where uh, among the uh, among the resolutions that the SCLC passed was for a two dollar an hour uh, federal minimum wage for uh, abolition of portions of the Taft Hartley Act uh, 14B that uh, that uh, basically prevented uh, closed shops for a a national guaranteed income. These were all labor planks that were uh, part of the direction and the thrust of a civil rights organization. You talk about the evolution of that consciousness in Martin Luther King, Jr. Most people don't know that Dr. King was a strong union supporter from his earliest days. And as Dr. Uh, Reverend Lawson was just saying, you know, it's part of the social gospel about uh, 
raising up people on the bottom, the least of these. And King worked with uh, major unions from the Montgomery bus boycott onward. The United Packing House workers uh, especially came to his aid, and also the United Auto Workers Union, International Longshoremen's Union. He was in touch with eight or ten different unions, and he spoke at their conventions regularly. And people would call him up from Atlanta saying, we need somebody out here on the picket line with us in New York City for 1199 Hospital Workers Union. Would you come? And he would come, speak on the mm -hmm. picket line. Uh, he helped to uh, lead a strike of scripto workers in Atlanta, 800 black women, in 1964, right after he came back from Oslo getting the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. So he was a labor man, and union people know this. Uh, he, when he died in 68, uh, workers all over the country walked out. Uh, the West Coast got shut down by the longshore workers. The longshore workers in Louisiana and the Deep South went on strike. Uh, there were observances mm -hmm. everywhere. Uh, King is a, a labor man, and after he died, Coretta King uh, was arguing for a national holiday. She said it would be the first national holiday for somebody who gave his life in a labor struggle. Mm -hmm. So she understood that totally. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> Michael, honey, can you talk about King's early life and um, how he learned the importance of economic justice in his family. One of the things I point out in the book, uh, it's called To the Promised Land, and so the question is, what is the promised land? You know, when he made that statement in Memphis, people in the audience understood what he was saying. Uh, it came out of his whole life's experience but his whole family's experience. His great-grandparents were slaves. A number of them were slaves. Uh, his, his grandparents were sharecroppers and poor people who migrated to the city. His father was a um, poor man from uh, the rural areas of Georgia who migrated to the city of Atlanta with nothing in his pocket. And, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. was born in 1929 at the beginning of the Great Depression. And so he lived through the 30s as a young man, surrounded by neighborhoods that were quite poor. In fact, the scripto strike in 1964 was in his neighborhood. A lot of those people, a lot of those women were uh, his church members. So the Christian social gospel was something that his father adhered to deeply, and his grandfather also. This is what religion meant in the black church in the Deep South, was uh, taking care of each other. And this is what Dr. King did. And so working with unions and working with the sanitation workers was completely appropriate to everything else that he was doing. Uh, Reverend Lawson, yes? Uh, let me say, yeah, let me also say that in actual fact, the, the Negro spiritual, a huge collection of music that slaves sang that according to the historians, Frederick Douglass being one of them, the slave was forced to sing so that that would signify to the white overseers and to the plantation owner where they were on the plantation. That huge collection of original music in the United States, sung by the slave, had a number of major 
themes. One of the major themes was from the book of Exodus of the Bible. Go down, Moses. Tell, O Pharaoh, let my people go. So it, it is out of that music that the black religious experience has been very different from uh, mainline or majority Christian religion in the United States. Uh, uh, tens of thousands of those songs are available uh, not in their total form, but in various pieces of poetry and liturgy. So I maintain economic justice is at the heart of slave religion, which is why the Underground Railroad, why slaves were constantly getting out of slavery. My own great-great-grandparents, my great-grandfather was an escaped slave into the area of Dwelf, Guelph, Ontario in the Canada through the Underground Railroad. So economic justice, social justice, the dignity of every person is inherent in my understanding and King's understanding of the gospel of Jesus. Uh, I, I rarely ever speak of social gospel. That's an academic term that was developed at the turn of the 20th century. I speak of the whole gospel of Jesus. Much of Christianity rejects the teaching of Jesus, the teacher, the prophet. And, uh, and going back to the 1966 SCLC convention, yes, yes. Uh, SCLC uh, was engaged along with A. Philip Randolph and many other people in uh, framing an economic bill of rights for the disadvantaged which included a range of things that would mm -hmm. uh, bring about uh, some way to counter the effects of slavery and segregation. That's on the agenda now. Uh, it's not accidental that these high rates of poverty are in Memphis uh, among the black population. And we had 40 million poor people in King's Day. We have 40 million poor people today. The uh, Economic Bill of Rights was, how do we address all of those we're issues? we're going to talk about the Economic and Bill of Rights on the agenda in now. part two of our discussion. We'll post online at democracynow.org as a web exclusive. Our guests, Reverend James Lawson and Michael Honey, historian. That was uh, James Lawson and Michael Honey talking about the social gospel, the gospel that uh, we used to have, a gospel of liberation, exactly what it is. All labor has dignity. Hmm? True to what you said on paper. lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country. Maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read 
of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read, of the freedom of press, somewhere I read, that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. to live a long life longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now I just want to do God's will and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land I may not get there with this is such but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Okay, so there's King uh, talking in April of 1968, a night before he was murdered, and it was never somehow quite clear. You need to read a book called Act of State, where... Uh, the murder of Martin Luther King was researched, and it was a, a project that was a, a joint project of the Memphis police and, uh, and others. Listen to this one, Red Cat by Rye Cooter.
This is an old song written by Woody Guthrie back in the Depression days and uh, tells a story about these the people they call them Okies and Arkies and stuff, you know, because they came from Oklahoma and, and Arkansas and, and uh, Texas and places and the dust storm came and, and ruined their farms and, and their <clears throat> houses and everything. They had to get out, figured they couldn't do worse, said so long, it's been good to know you. And we're moving west. And they got out there, they found all these uh, border police at the California border telling them to go back. They said, well, we can't go back. He said, man, you can't stay here. And this little song tells about uh, what happened to them. Do re mi. Here we go. <laughs> Well, police have port of entry, say, boys, you're not 
15,000 for the day. Hey. And if you ain't got that dough,
somebody call for me Said the bankers all are leaving You better come round and see It's starting revelation They robbed the nation blind They're all down at the station No banker left behind No banker, no banker No banker could I find They were all down at the station No banker left behind They went one day They was going to call on the president In a quiet and a sociable way And the afternoon was sunny And the weather it was fine They counted out our money And no banker was left behind No banker, no banker No banker could I find They were all down at the White House No banker was left behind our Rye Cooter set. <laughs> Rye Cooter, the last one, there was no banker left behind. The day when all the bankers so ashamed that their transgressions had been discovered, uh, they all leave town. No banker was left behind. Before that, the Woody Guthrie classic, 
the do re mi if you ain't got the do re mi boys if you ain't got the do re mi you can go back to beautiful texas oklahoma tennessee ably ably accompanied on that one by the king of the norteño accordion flaco jimenez and before that red cat till i die Rykuter with an old uh, wobbly song, I-W-W, I'll be a red cat till I die. All right, let's move on here. Tanks and AR-15s, militarized evictions, Moms for Housing speaks out after militarized eviction from vacant Oakland house. This is on uh, Democracy Now. Rally cry against rampant income inequality and homelessness in the Bay Area and across the... And take one of you down back to hell with me. <laughs> Let's give a little introduction here. Um... Moms for Housing are a group in Oakland. Uh, they were homeless. They'd been kicked out of their homes. And they uh, occupied a house. Squatting this is something that was widespread in the 30s when people were homeless. And widespread all over Europe. Squatting. You see a place? I mean... Statistics tell us that for every homeless person, there are four unrented properties, four vacant properties. What is to be done? Let's see if we can get... Brother is gone. Brother is gone. Brother is gone. little bit more Ry Cooter there. Little brother's gone. Homeless. Let's listen to this now. This is... The house was occupied. The owner is a, a company called Wedgwood Properties that holds... has holdings all over the U.S. and we'll run it... we'll run it down. Let's listen to this, though. On Tuesday, as one of the mothers, Dominique Walker, joined us live on Democracy Now! from a studio in Berkeley, sheriff's deputies carried out a pre-dawn militarized raid aimed at evicting the moms. Just after 5 a.m. Tuesday morning, uh, Dominique pulled the airpiece out of her ear 
and they left the studio. It was Tuesday morning, about just around uh, 6 a.m. Um, California time. Dozens of armed deputies, including a tactical team, descended on the house on Magnolia Street, broke down the door with a battering ram, sent a robot into the house, allegedly to search for possible threats. The deputies then arrested two mothers who were living in the house, as well as two of their supporters. All four were released on bail Tuesday afternoon. Well, for more, we go back to Berkeley, California, where we're joined now by another of the mothers, Misty Cross, a member of Moms for Housing, who was arrested on Tuesday, and her 12-year-old daughter, Destiny Johnson. Also with us, Carol Fife, who was joining us as the battering ram was going into the house. She's the director of the Oakland Office for Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, organizer, educator, mother, and 20-year-plus resident of Oakland. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Um, uh, Misty, if you can start off by talking about what happened two mornings ago. Tuesday morning, it was like a movie scene. I had never seen anything like that live in my life. To we never had gotten sleep that night because we knew that the sheriffs had 24 hours to serve the, cert, the eviction. So while we stayed up and watched and waited for them to come in, they came and it was something like they had knew that Dominique wasn't going to be at the home, so they waited till they got good on air and started to proceed to do the eviction. When they came to the door ramming as hard as they were and all the tactical gear as we watched from the window with AR-15s and these tanks and fire departments and ambulances out there like it was a real terrorist threat like we were armed and we were dangerous as i recall we've always said that everything has been a nonviolent civil disobedient act we haven't disrespected anyone nor has we called harm to anyone so it was really shocking and we were just puzzled really on how many armed forces were outside at that time. Uh, let's Once the sheriff... Uh, go ahead, Misty. Once the sheriffs um, actually made their way through the door to get in a little bit, they sent in a robot that came in to roam around the home to see if there was any explosives or weapons of some form. I later found out that the tank that they had outside was a detection on it that can shoot people and detect weapons on site just by like a metal detector. So it would shoot at anything that had some form of weapon on them. I just still am like traumatized from it. I have been a victim of violent crime myself before, shot multiple times with an AK-47. So to come out and see these men holding these guns for women and children was really—it was a scary moment, So, and it took me back. Speaking of children, uh, your daughter, Destiny, is sitting right next to you. Destiny, can you talk about how you felt on Tuesday morning? Well, how I felt, it was like, as my mom said, it was scary. And 
all I wanted to know is that she's going to be safe and what was the next step and I was kind of puzzled because I saw how heavy they came and I was wondering like why like, and I was imagining if I was there and if I was upstairs and just seeing them come in and like having guns drawn and if it was drawn at me and the other kids will be like that might cause trauma. Well, and Carol Fife, can you talk about um, how you understand the extraordinarily uh, uh, militarized response? I mean, tanks and guns and tactical gear? I can't understand it. I don't understand it. Um, there was some indicator that the, the sheriffs would um, use some type of force. It was alluded to in several press um, statements that were made by the Alameda County Sheriff's, which is what prompted the moms to continuously repeat, as well as their attorneys, that this is nonviolent civil disobedience. Um, but the sheriff said early on that the mothers would determine the level of force that they used. And so we're thinking there's no reason to use any level of force for a nonviolent civil disobedience action. Um, yet they came in a way that I've never seen in real life, let alone in a residential, small community um, for unarmed civilians. It, this is the most obscene use of taxpayer dollars that I've seen in a long time. I want to go back to the Mother Jones piece that we quoted the other day in Oakland, where buyers routinely offer hundreds of thousands of dollars over asking prices. There are nearly four vacant properties for every homeless person. It's not so much an issue of scarcity, but of distribution. Um, Carol, uh, you were in the studio as well when the two of you hightailed it out of there to get back to the house as the battering ram was moving in. Can you explain the owner of the this house, uh, how it was the house was vacant for two years, and the significance of what's happening in Oakland, and of course, larger than that. This one home, particularly in the state that it's in, represents very little to the owner of this property. And um, Wedgwood Properties, which has 96 subsidiaries all over the United States, operational in 18 states, is a very, very wealthy organization. Mm -hmm. So this home represents hundreds, if not thousands, of other homes that lie vacant, able to be used by Oakland residents. If there are four empty homes for every one unsheltered person, you know, the city could potentially purchase those, um, put them in the land trust, and house everyone and get people off the streets tonight, if that was the goal. But because we have a market, a housing market that is um, highly speculative and um, we are selling homes to the highest bidder, we have the outcomes, which are not coincidental, which is some of the highest levels of poverty and homelessness in uh, the state of California. Misty Cross, can you uh, talk about what you think the local response from the leadership has been, including uh, especially Mayor Libby uh, uh, Schaff? Hmm. Libby Schaff, the mayor of Oakland, has not acknowledged Moms for Housing. The first time she mentioned out of her mouth of Moms for Housing was on the news 
7 a.m. before her press conference at 10 a.m. of her introduction of the SB 50 bill. When that news aired, it showed guns, break-ins, um, there was some operation that was going on that she was hosting to where they were going to look for criminals. And in the midst of her having that shown, she, she says that anyone breaking the law will have to pay a price. And then she showed the clip of homelessness and her concern about that. And it was mentioned how did she feel about Moms for Housing and was she in support. She never said that she was in support. She said that she understood the civil disobedience part of the movement, but never said once that she understood. We, we, just, she, we just have 20 seconds. Where are you now, Misty and Destiny? Where are you staying now that you've been evicted? We're staying at a shelter. We're staying at a shelter. Um, we are still trying to think of our next solutions onto our housing situation, but all of that is moving forward. Again, it was never about trying to stay in that house. The message we were trying to send out was to get people aware of policies and things that are in place that are making us not move forward in life and having housing as a human right, which is something that every housing, every human should have. We have to period. break here, but we're going to do part two and we're going to post online at Democracy Now! Misty Cross and Destiny, uh, thank you so much for being with us. And Carol Fife, director of the Oakland Office of Alliance for Californians for Community. So there's the story about uh, Moms for Housing and the action in Oakland last week. Let's dwell on this for a minute. Uh, the, the one woman touched on touched on it, said that it's a, a market. But let's look at uh, this whole world, the way the world is under capitalism. Now, under capitalism, things have a commodity value, okay? If there's a hungry kid outside a store and there's a pile of apples inside the kid can't go in and eat an apple because it's no longer just an apple it's a commodity and the owner of the apple the storekeeper has money invested in it so he's not going to let the kid just go in and eat it the same is here under capitalism things have commodity value this house on Magnolia Avenue in Oakland has commodity value for the owners of the house, the Wedgwood Corporation. Therefore, you've got moms and their kids and homeless people outside freezing to death in some cases, living in shelters because the owner of that house has has it as a commodity. Four houses empty for every homeless person in Oakland. Now, what is that? She identified it. It's a speculative market. The home is no longer a home. It's a commodity. 
How did all this happen? Well, it comes with capitalism. In 2007 and 2008, lots and lots and lots of people lost their homes because they had accepted loans. In some cases, they'd been tricked into loans and ignorance into loans that they couldn't afford. What happened? Did the U.S. government come to the rescue of those homeowners, those families? No, they didn't come to the aid of the homeowners. They came to the aid of the finance people, the people who held the notes of those loans. And when those notes defaulted, they were left holding the bag. They had made all those, all those irresponsible loans just to get things like the filing fees, just to put them into trenches, like trenches, like so they could sell them. They were bailed out. People like Steve Mnuchin got rich off the misery of American homeowners. So there, in, in, right in broad daylight, they didn't, they didn't bail out the homeowners who had been victimized. They bailed out the people who had made the crazy loans people who had made those loans, people who had lied about their value, who lied about the value of the houses. Everybody made money except the people at the end, people whose houses were taken away from them. So this is the basis. Protests against... Wedgwood and against the situation is a protest against capitalism. Tanks and AR-15s, robots. <laughs> Very strange. Well, let's play some music. I want to play some music now by a group called Los Peludos under the leadership of a local musician slash lawyer named Enrique Ramirez. This song is called Aqui No Será. We Won't Stand. This was connected to the anti-militaristic movement in the United States against intervention in El Salvador.
van trabajando, pensando en todo, menos en ella. Salí a las seis en la esquina esperando ese camión que ya me llevará. Con cada vuelta me acerco a su hogar, la luz del sol se esconde bajo el mar. Veo a mi prietita cerca el barandar. del barrio se han convertido en un gran carnaval todos los niños jugando y gritando a un pobre viejo hacen berrinchar toda la gente sonríe al saludar y su murmuro es un canto de mal cada familia sale a su portal los novios se aman Oye cantar, me voy para el pueblo, hoy es mi día, voy a alegrar todo el alma mía, me voy para el pueblo, hoy es mi día, voy a alegrar todo el alma mía.
My bad. <clears throat> that one was called Me Voy para Pueblo. I'm going to the village. Here's the one associated with uh, the El Salvadorian resistance. Real women have curfews. En Vietnam tuvieron su dificultad de ser en el centro de la América. Hasta la misión, vamos milicianos en 
será fácil ocasión Aquí no será tan solo un Vietnam La América entera no permitirá otra intervención down let's go down come on friends and let's go down down on the picket line come on friends and let's go down let's go down let's go down come on friends and let's go down down on the picket line as i went down on the picket line So that set, we uh, featured an album by Los Peludos, featuring Enrique Ramirez, the uh, lyricist and guitar player, along with his brother uh, Antonio, and a couple others, I believe, a very prominent mission local guy, Miguel Govea. Los Peludos, the hairy ones. And then a version of Let's Go Down 
Oh, sister, let's go down. That was, uh... Let's see. Looking for that album. Can't find it. I'll let you know later. <laughs> How can we beat Trump at his own game? Here's one of our resident comedians. One of the resident Francescas. What do we need to defeat Trumpism? A bear trap and a Big Mac? If only it were that easy. I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and in this episode of Newsbroke, we're looking at how to finally wake from this political nightmare come 2020. It's going to mean learning from past mistakes and maybe even taking a page out of Trump's book, which should be pretty easy, because it's mostly just pictures. Newsbroke is back. This season will be shorter, but mightier, which is exactly what Trump told Stormy Daniels. Oh, still got it. It's been over a year since we've been off the internet, or 666 trapped in Stephen Miller's episode of Black Mirror. And a lot has happened. We had the longest government shutdown ever, six indictments of Trump staffers, a very long report about obstruction of justice. It's not totally clear because we have this new attorney general who ironically really hates laws. Oh, we also have another accused sexual assaulter on the Supreme Court, systematic child abuse at the border, and the White House has gone through more officials in a year than I have voodoo dolls, which means I'm behind. But there has been some good news. The midterm elections were a breath of fresh air in this Dutch oven of authoritarianism. A record number of voters turned out to elect the most diverse Congress in American history, which includes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's become a one-woman dunking machine on the powerful. People are more concerned about helping oil companies than helping their own families? I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> I get tingles. This is my ASMR. The biggest ray of hope, though, 2020 could be Trump's last year as president, and the teenage aliens who planted him on Earth for their intergalactic prank video will collect him and be on their way. And to make sure it's his last, we have to reckon with how hard we f***ed up in 2016 and not repeat the same mistakes. I mean, Newsbroke straight up hired a mariachi band on election night to celebrate his defeat. That's how wrong we got it. Some of it is out of our hands, considering the federal government hasn't done much to stop election interference and the electoral college is somehow still a thing. But we can do things like not fool ourselves into thinking beating him will be easy. Trump still has the support of 90% of Republicans and 96% of people who believe JFK Jr. faked his death and became QAnon. Just so we're clear, I'm talking about how to beat Trump, not how to govern. See, governing is the prize we get for beating him. It's like winning a carnival game and taking home a goldfish named America that's really hard to keep alive. To defeat him, we also have to stop pretending Trump is our only problem. He's our first one, sure. Trump is like our flare-up, but America's had herpes for a while. And sure, we will settle for antiviral meds if it's the only thing available. But we have to at least try and find the cure, the antidote to our country's STI known as Trumpism. And to get an antidote, you have to understand the disease and remember why Americans voted for the guy and why some might like him. <laughs> I know, racism. Bye. Uh, for the NPR listeners, that's economic anxiety.
Yes, absolutely racism, and we'll delve more into that in episodes to come. But there are other things that Trump did that Democrats have to do. Be an outsider. Trump was a supposedly anti-establishment candidate who was supposedly going to drain the swamp, and supposedly it was water on the teleprompter that made him say the American Revolutionary Army took over airports. And using GPS technology, we finally took out Hitler, a very fine person. All that was attractive to many Americans because most of us are distrustful of government. Blame Citizens United, blame the show Veep. The reality is only 17% of Americans today believe the government will do what's right. Even when Obama was in the White House, that number was hovering around 20%. Anyone trying to go up against Trump on account of having political experience won't work because Americans don't like most politicians or government. It's why author Marianne Williamson can even be on the Democratic debate stage, that and the big crystal lobby. And while the GOP at this point could arguably be classified as a hate group, it's not like voters trust Democrats either. As my comedy Zaddy says, The Democrats haven't done enough to show to people that government that can be effective for people can be efficient for people. And if you can't do that, then you've lost the right to make that change and someone's going to come in and demagogue you. Later that year, we got demagogued. So if there is even a hint of swampiness in a candidate's record, Trump will exploit it, like he did with Clinton. His campaign's Twitter account already railed against Cory Booker for receiving millions in big pharma money, and he'll probably bring up Joe Biden's support of the 94 crime bill that led to mass incarceration. And of course, Amy Klobuchar eating her salad with a comb. Although, he might like that on like a sociopathic level. The Democrats have to be authentic. Trump was. I mean, you can be a total phony and still be authentic. Like the trailer for Cats. Those aren't f***ing cats. <laughs> and even when he's pandering to racists, it only makes him sound more authentic. That's why any campaign or candidate with a whiff of inauthenticity is going to ring extra hollow this time around, like speaking another language. La situación ahora es inaceptable. SB Presidente ha atacado, ha demonizado los inmigrantes. Es inaceptable y voy a cambiar este. Is Spanish supposed to hurt? Or how about this recent tweet from the Democrats hawking their exclusive Boy Bye 2020 smartphone wallpaper? Because nothing says we're serious about stopping authoritarianism in 2020 than a Beyonce lyric from 2016. At this point, Democrats are more likely to tweet a peach emoji than impeach the president. Democrats must have a vision. Trump's got one. Sure, it's the same vision David Duke has on edibles, but it's a vision. He knows that America has real economic and racial fissures, and he exploits them to push a vision of mass detention, mass deportation, and a redistribution of wealth to those who already have too much of it. At least he's attempting to tackle our problems rather than pretending they don't exist. Like Joe Biden, who often mistakes the flare-up for the herpes, so to speak, and thinks that once Trump is gone, Republicans will just be better. The thing that will fundamentally change things is with Donald Trump out of the White House, not a joke. You will see an epiphany occur among many of my Republican friends. An epiphany? This isn't a Christmas carol. Mitch McConnell doesn't have a change of heart. He raises Tiny Tim's medical bills. Republicans had their epiphany. It came in bronzer. And the fact that Biden thinks everything can just go back, back to the conditions that were ripe for Trump, is alarming. If a candidate is compromised on their vision, 
it'll be used against them as well. That's why it's concerning that Kamala Harris consistently flip-flops on whether she supports ending private insurance as a part of a Medicare for All plan. You don't have to go through the process of going through an insurance company. Let's eliminate all of that. Let's move on. Let's get rid of all the bureaucracy. Let's get all of the ways. Oh, not the insurance companies. No, that's not what I meant. Who here would abolish their private health insurance in favor of a government-run plan? The question was, would you give up your private insurance for that option? And I said yes. Okay, okay, stop. Whatever else that is, it is definitely gaslighting. Listen, babe, when you say, will you come to my grandmother's funeral, I heard, do you love me? And I've been consistent in saying, of course, I don't not love you. Trump has a base and it's considered a force. His base is his Frankenstein monster. He helped create it and now it's got a life of its own and it wants a bride. Kellyanne was in fact rejected. The Democrats also need a base. They have the beginnings of one, but they don't have a leadership that listens to it. What did Pelosi call AOC's Green New Deal? The Green Dream? That's a sativa, Mrs. Speaker. Going into 2020, we have to ask, what do old guard Democrats have in their arsenal to confront this president head on? The president likes to have his poster that said the Mueller report took this many days, cost this much money, this, that, and the other. Well, we have a, 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 a corresponding competitive, a, a contradictory chart. A chart? Oh, God, we're so f***ed. There is only one thing to say to that. I don't think so. I don't think so. <sighs> the fact that the right is so obsessed with the squad is because the squad isn't afraid to fight back. It's the Democrats' turn to scare Republicans with their boldness. Republicans are already getting choked up about the leftward shift of the Dems. Socialism at a level we've never seen before and with a predictable result, correct? Look, uh, the debate last night. <coughs> uh, take a sip of water. Sorry, one of the baby bats in my esophagus just hatched. Ted Cruz, now the least interesting man in the world, does manage to choke out this point. Look, the debate last night, the, 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 the clown car is broken. Uh, there's no brake and it only steered left. Uh, I, I gotta say that was scary last night. What? Clown car? Everyone tripping over themselves to steer farther to an extreme, scaring the other side? That's the same thing we were saying about Trump and the rest of the Republicans in 2016. Except we were right to be alarmed. Now it's our turn to scare them. Not with a medieval border wall, but free healthcare and absolving student debt. I know Michelle Obama said when they go low, we go high, but this administration doesn't respond to shame. It gets off on it, like a gibbon in a zoo. The more you shake your finger at it, the more it shakes one back at you. <laughs> there is no more center to placate, no moderate voter to win over, and definitely no guidelines for electability. We've got 12 years to stop climate change and eight to stop Kylie Jenner. The only old meme we should still be using in 2020 is ain't nobody got time for that. Everything is on the line, no pressure, but let's not it up again, shall we? Thank you so much for watching News Broke. You guys made this happen. Our second season, we're back for you. So like and share and follow and subscribe and all of the things and all of the buttons on all of the platforms. Also, let me know who you think has what it takes.
a green card to move to America. And then that takes two or four years, so we've got some time before I get to the punchline. The immigration debate isn't exactly a new conversation in America, but lately that debate has gotten even more heated, what with talk of travel bans and multi-billion dollar border walls. Lots of people have their own ideas about the solution to the so-called illegal immigrant problem, but few realize or care how the immigration process in America actually works. Spoiler alert, it doesn't work. For those who aren't in the know, why can't they just get in line to come here legally? Seems like a pretty reasonable question. But this isn't the old timey days when 98% of people who showed up to Ellis Island were let into the country. Today, America's immigration process is super long and super expensive. Follow me, if you will, through the hellish landscape that is green card land. It's like Candyland, only way more depressing. So you wanna live and work in America. There are several ways to achieve this, and none of them are easy or necessarily guaranteed to make you a citizen. First, you've gotta figure out what kind of tedious application journey you're about to embark on. Let's talk about a few. If you're from a country with a low immigration rate, you could apply for the green card lottery, in which over 11 million people worldwide each year apply for only 50,000 available visas. Gotta love those less than 0.5% odds. But for argument's sake, let's say you apply for the lottery and don't win. You could file an employment-based application. All you need is an eligible employer in the United States to sponsor you and pay for the application process and prove you're not taking away a valuable job from a US citizen. Don't worry, this will only take like a year to get approved by the Labor Department if you have a master's or PhD, and only two to five years if you don't. Plus, you have to be outside the US if you don't have lawful status. And on top of that, you haven't even applied for the actual visa yet. Isn't waiting for years on slim hopes the best? But if you're really special, you can apply for a shiny EB-1 visa. That's for aliens of extraordinary ability. Basically, anyone who's managed to excel in the arts, business, academia, or athletics, and fits at least three of 10 special, special people requirements, or they've made a cool one-time achievement like winning a Pulitzer, an Oscar, or an Olympic medal. What, you don't have a Pulitzer? Let's say maybe the employer thing didn't work and your Pulitzer was lost in the mail. Well, you could have a family member petition for you, if they're already living in the United States legally. If you're flying solo, your last option is to find a spouse. Just be prepared to prove it's real. Contrary to every 90s sitcom sham green card marriage plot, the whole process doesn't take place in 30 hilarious minutes, but over the course of several months to a year. And you may even have to prove it again two years later if you haven't been married that long. But if you don't have have an American Bay? Well, bye. Did I mention the cost of all of this? Because no matter what application you file, it's going to be a pretty penny. A standard green card application costs $1,760, and a lawyer to walk you through the filing process can run you anywhere from $500 to $10,000, depending on how complicated your case is going to be. Plus, there are literally hundreds of different forms that you may have to file, and all of them will cost something. You'll be shelling out money on fees to the government, lawyers, passport photos, biometrics, mailing costs and so on, all while trying to, you know, live your life. All right, so let's say you've managed to raise the money to pay all the fees and maybe get a decent lawyer. You've gathered all the necessary documents and filled out your applications to the best of your ability. Good job on answering no to are you a terrorist? 
You win, right? You've reached Green Card Castle. <laughs> no. The Department of Homeland Security, which now manages immigration, is notorious for its backlogged, outdated system. An application can get rejected for all kinds of reasons. Maybe your passport photos aren't the right size. Or you forgot to check a box on page 19. And even if your application is perfect, you can wait up to four years for a response. And in some cases, even 10. Plus, if you're rejected after all this, you could face deportation or go back to start in this long and costly green card land adventure. Look, America is a country of immigrants, except Native Americans, of course, and African Americans who were, you know, brought here against their will. Obviously, undocumented immigration is a complex issue, which means there's no easy solution. But maybe before building a wall or issuing highly specific travel bans, we should focus on building a better system for welcoming new folks in. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time right here on Decoded. Francesca Ramsey there with uh, maybe an idea about why it takes so long and why people are perhaps not willing to wait that long. They might be dead by the time they're answered. Here's uh, one of my favorites, Waylon Jennings and his wife, Jesse Coulter, singing... Suspicious minds. We're caught in a trap. Can't walk out. Because I loved you too much, baby. Why can't you see what you've been doing to me? Suspicious mind We can't build our dreams On suspicious mind Saw an old friend I know Stop to say hello But I could still see suspicion in your eyes
Okay, that's about it for labor and love today. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Remember, it's your labor that makes them rich. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. Of course, they don't want you to join together with your fellow workers to demand just and fair treatment. Of course, they want to keep you ignorant. Labor and Love Radio, where we enlighten you. Let's see, I wanted to go out today with a tribute to my dad. My dad, January 15th, 1914. A favorite of his. By the great Benny Goodman. Stomping at the Savoy.
It's your boy Sifo here, here to let you know that the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival is March 1st through 7th, 2021. Podcasts and comedy shows, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week. Get your tickets now on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comics from all over the U.S. Coming for 66 programs in seven days, all here at 2781 21st Street in the heart of the mission. Or if you can't be with us, listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at www.mutinyradio.fm Join us March 1st to 7th for these amazing events. What kind of a future? Law Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Davis, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834. San Francisco Mutiny Radio San Francisco Mutiny Radio Listen to live streaming radio Or download a podcast And you can listen on the go Listen to live streaming radio Or download a podcast And you can San Francisco Mutiny Radio San Francisco Mutiny Radio MutinyRadio.fm Why not make a donation? MutinyRadio.fm Streaming live the station MutinyRadio.fm District of the Mission MutinyRadio.fm MutinyRadio.fm Listen to Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Look, why not go to mutinyradio.fm, hit the donate button, stream them live, download a podcast, have some fun!
Oh, and I will cut the Henry, yeah, Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report. First Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on mutinyradio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch What's happening? This is your boy, Rob Edwards. I'm here to tell you about the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's March 1st through the 7th, 2020, with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week long. Get your tickets on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comments from all over the U.S. Coming for 66 programs in seven days, all here at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission, or listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at mutinyradio.fm. Join us March 1st through the 7th for these amazing events. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even going to be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8 that's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. 
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. Tired of paying too much for your internet? Contracts and hidden fees got you down? Tired of supporting the same big cable companies that lobby against a free and open internet? Get Monkey Brains! Monkey Brains is a local internet provider who doesn't sell your data, bind you down with contracts, or trick you with hidden monthly fees. We're honest, local, and 100% net neutral. Residential internet for only $35 a month, business packages starting at $75 a month, Go to monkeybrains.net and sign up today. Asiento. Asiento. Take a seat at Asiento. It's Bug Out Square. It's, uh, well, it's, it's Tuesday morning. It's not Tuesday evening. But uh, it's uh, New Year's Eve and uh, got some big plans. Uh, partner got uh, some tickets. Black Plastic. Uni Radio, that again. <laughs> 